0: Hello, and welcome to the Practical Neurology podcast for the June 2023 edition. And uh, we're going to discuss the array of papers that are in this issue. And uh, But first, actually, Geraint, I did just wonder, what the, the job that an editor does, I mean, I'm often asked, what does an editor do? I say, to cut a long story short. A lot of what we do is about making less of uh, the story that authors submit. But there is something about balancing diagnosis
1: and treatment in our papers. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think it's obviously what we do is we make a diagnosis and that hopefully goes to lead on to some sort of treatment. But I think it is quite interesting to look at the balance in the journal between diagnosis and treatment. And I think if you were to look when we started or even when Charles Warlow started back in uh, 2001, the range of treatment options were really remarkably fewer and so i think the balance has moved from just diagnostic and the best test and how to do things onto what to do about it and i think we've got a, a number of very interesting articles that reflect that and indeed the way that's changed not just for um new treatments that have come out and this kind of thing but actually also i think probably to the overall way in which we approach trying to look after patients with neurological disease the emphasis has, has moved the dial has moved from diagnosis to treatment and management yeah
0: so certainly when we started uh it was all about diagnosis wasn't it and and the uh, no not just because there weren't treatments but because the the focus of a neurological's endeavor was to try to make that diagnosis secure and then other people would do the longer term management but that has changed so much and the content of this issue's uh, Practical Neurology really summarises that, I think, that uh, treatments aren't necessarily pharmacological, but uh, when they are, there's a
1: bigger, much bigger array of choices for us. Yeah. So I think we're starting with something which is primarily uh, a diagnosis, or certainly the framing is one of diagnosis, which is the diagnosis of delirium, a practical approach uh, by Sean Alexander and Edward Needham. And I think you're taking us through this film. Yeah, thank you. So... Delirium, of course,
0: is an archetypal medical, general medical condition, and uh, is the reason why neurologists really need to be well versed in general medicine. Not perhaps a traditional neurological condition, but you know, delirium crosses the the boundaries of medicine. Um, and I think this paper links in very nicely with the review we had on frailty from Lucy Pollock um, some uh, some months ago, and the editorial by Tom Hughes that went with that, and both of those actually are referees of this paper, so they've uh, added to that. The The thing about delirium, of course, and what what I perhaps learned from the paper is that this is a positive diagnosis rather than a diagnosis of exclusion. It is distinct from acute confusion. It is one of the several acute confusions, but this is the one where there is fluctuation and uh, there is uh, altered awareness and there is hallucination and so forth. So it's a positive diagnosis. But it, it as with frailty, really, it's it's about the vulnerability of an individual to what can be just a normal physiological insult, uh, or something like a urinary tract infection, or or a drug intoxication, drug withdrawal, that sort of thing, and um, to steal Tom Hughes's metaphor, it's about Kaplunk sticks. This game where you uh, have a set of marbles that are held up by a number of sticks and each child, it's usually a child, will withdraw one of the sticks and uh, it all holds up until eventually the last stick and the whole thing collapses. And that's really it, that if you've only got one or two Kaplunk sticks left, then just a UTI or something may tip you over into delirium. So um, the underlying causes are really the vulnerability and the important Clinical part of it is to ensure that the diagnosis is correct, that you've uh, looked at the differential diagnosis, etc. And uh, and one of the d- differential diagnoses is things like a very discrete stroke in the right hemisphere, in the right posterior superior temporal gyrus. But uh, most of the differential diagnoses are uh, the other causes of acute confusional state. And the treatment, as we've already alluded to, the treatment is supportive and non pharmacological where possible that um, uh, we're not necessarily going to intervene with with drugs sedative drugs antipsychotic drugs these are going to clearly be the the wrong thing to do and and I think the cases very the, the cases at the end three cases very nicely ground the paper into clinical practice so we got three examples all in slightly frightening uh, situations of ITU, haematology ward and psychiatric ward. They all give a frisson of excitement just to mention those. But uh, these, I think, are very helpful examples that tell us how we're best managing um, delirium. So uh, I very much like the paper. I think it's practically based. It's a very, very important topic. And it's written by experienced people. Um, I think this will be one that uh, we should all read and we will encounter these cases very often, but uh, uh, it's definitely also one to have on the shelf to refer to when when uh, uh, coming across this sort of case.
1: Yeah, I think that there are two, I mean, I, I like the paper and I think there are a couple of things that I thought um, work very well. So uh, they have a, a nice figure, figure two, which has a sort of sliding scale of brain vulnerability and physiological insult. And um, I think the idea that, you know, as you mentioned, so someone with incipient um, dementia who has a trivial insult clearly can become delirious. But equally, if you've got a young person with robust and and good physiology with appropriate multi-organ failure, intensive care and so on, uh, may end up with a similar sort of phenotype. So I thought that was very nice. The other thing I think that is quite helpful and and, and I think a very useful sort of aid memoir is their hierarchy of investigations that they've put um, together in in box two, where you have a sort of series of what do you do and and starting with relatively simple things and sort of escalating up, reflecting the fact that obviously diagnosis is an iterative and thoughtful process rather than one where you send a battery of tests. But it provides a nice sort of sequence of things to think about, going all from full blood counts up at the top and oximetry, no down to much more specialized tests, including things like um, CSF biomarkers and so on, if that's going to be helpful in in clarifying the diagnosis. So I I think this is going to be something which um, certainly I would be planning to hand out to our junior doctors when they arrive. And hopefully that's going to help them make the first step uh, in managing these difficult patients.
0: Yeah, and uh, and just a confession about the spelling. When I did my first presentation to the Southwest Audit meeting, um, you were probably there, Garant, when I was a senior registrar, uh, I spelt delirium with too many E's and too few I's, and uh, your colleague David Stevens uh, humiliated me for, for that. So uh, thank him for that lesson. Uh, I've since become very fussy about the spelling of delirium, along with propranolol and ophthalmoscope, et cetera. Uh, so... Um, <laughs> A brief bit of diversion and confession there
1: absolutely and, and, and something i think many of us fall a trip over so you're in very good company okay so so the next one um,
0: is no qu- quite different really this is very firmly focused on a very specific treatment this is uh, uh, cgrp calcitonin gene related peptide monoclonal antibodies for migraine this is the the new treatments um, for migraine. This is by Nikki Giffin, who's uh, a neurologist in Bath in the UK. And, uh, Garant, you've been looking through this.
1: So, so we, for the most part, we don't tend to um, commission or focus on specific treatments, um, rather than um, we tend to have a, a, a broader approach to therapeutics, um, recognising that, for the most part, um, it, you know, you're not going to just think about one drug However, this this group of drugs have arrived and they do seem to be making a very big impact. They're rather different and many of our colleagues won't have had very much exposure to them. So we thought having a review at this time would be helpful in essentially um, helping neurologists, particularly those who haven't got a particular interest in headache, knowing what it's all about uh, and who to refer and what to think about. Our second problem with any kind of therapeutic uh, commissioning is to try and find people who don't have conflicts of interest who can try and give you a balanced assessment of where you are and um, we were very fortunate that uh, despite nikki's expertise in headache she doesn't have the commercial conflicts which so frequently color these things so cgrp so i mean i would strongly encourage everyone to read this because i think this is something which is going to change uh, people's practice it, it does a um a appear to be a very new uh, and helpful set of treatments. But equally, it's not without problems. And one of the problems, as with all of these things, is that we don't quite know enough about it. So CGRP is thought to be important in the pathogenesis of migraine. So it seems to be uh, one of the crucial systems that generates the headache pain. Um, and uh, Fair amount is made of the fact that this is therefore a logical treatment for uh, headache syndrome, as opposed to most of the treatments for migraine that we have, which have been sort of accidentally discovered. You know, propranolol, it, it was the fact that fewer patients in the uh, active arm of the, the, the trials had headaches that actually put people onto the idea of using it as a migraine prophylaxis and then developing the beta blocker trials. And likewise, with lots of the other agents that we use for migraine, it's been an accidental discovery rather than a deliberate one. So we've got these these antibodies which are delivered as um, monthly or um, quarterly, and there's a prospect potentially of oral treatments. And uh, all of them have extraordinarily difficult uh, trade names and relatively easy um, uh, commercial names, as is often the case. But uh, it doesn't appear to be substantial differences between them. So I think we'll just discuss them as a as a, a group rather than one by one. Um, they're now licensed and. Um, you know, so first of all, what's the evidence? And the evidence seems to be sort of at two tiers. And, and Nikki points out that we've got these two levels of, uh, of the data. The first is if you take patients who are naive, that's to say patients with migraine who are having generally four or more headaches a month or chronic migraine um, with 15 or more days a month. If you give them the treatment, it does seem to have um, a 50% reduction in um, monthly migraine days uh, after three months, uh, about 50% or so. But within that, you have a, a placebo rate of uh, between 20 and 40%. So you've got a very high placebo rate in that cohort. There are relatively smaller numbers of uh, trials which have looked at patients who've had failures on multiple agents. And interestingly, the overall rate in those patients seems to be broadly similar, but with a much lower placebo rate encouraging you to think that this may actually prove to be helpful across the piece. So, so th- this is so so far so encouraging. Um, obviously, it's not entirely without difficulty because we, we don't really have long term follow up for these patients. You know, there is inevitably a newer agent um, and. Um, we're not quite sure what's going to happen in the long term. We're not sure what's going to happen in the long term as to whether people need to remain on it. There's some suggestion if you come off it, it bounces back again, but that's still not clear cut. The long-term side effect profile is as yet uncertain, simply because it hasn't. No one's been on it for five years, so we don't really know what happens after that. There are issues around uh, pregnancy. We're not sure what happens in pregnancy, and obviously a lot of migraineurs are young women who are potentially going to fall pregnant, and the obviously, the, the trials haven't included pregnant women, as is, is always the case, which makes that a bit tricky. There are some theoretical risks um, about uh, vascular disease. So we're not absolutely sure where it falls in relation to that. So there's, there are a number of imponderables attached to all of that. In addition, these are not cheap drugs. Uh, it does mention the prices, um, but it's um, 380 to £450 pounds a month for a treatment. So this is a very, very significant cost for a condition which is as common as migraine is uh, if it's it's going to get wide uptake. So I I think it's one of those situations where uh, this seems to be a promising uh, group of drugs. They seem to be uh, pretty well tolerated and seem to work reasonably well. Um, There's some suggestion they may do better in patients with medication overuse, but actually for the most part, people are, are keen to get them off uh medication uh, uh analgesic abuse uh, before t- thinking about starting but this seems a, a very encouraging set of uh treatments but with uncertainties um hopefully people will find it useful
0: yeah well i, I think they will and, and I, i'm impressed actually that it's such a well-balanced report you, you're right that we favor experience and so many experienced people will come with conflicts of interest and so uh, I think we've been very lucky to find this uh, absolutely correct balance uh, uh, with um, th- this report which is which is well balanced and uh, does point out the, uh, uh, the the benefits but also the inevitable drawbacks and as you said there's no long term follow up uh, there might be overuse problems with these drugs, for all we know. There's no head-to-head trials, of course. These are all have different manufacturers and there's no interest in them in doing a head-to-head study. Um, the people at risk from the these drugs potentially, in theory, those with vascular disease, etc., excluded from the trials, along with the pregnant women, of course. And so these uh, d- data will need some real-life experience before we... Truly know whether it's um uh, appropriate for our patients and um it 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 sort of starts a new subspecialty of neurology really that uh the the, that these tend to be delivered by one or two people in each department rather like the ms drugs probably they're a very expensive drug they need to be delivered by people with a lot of experience and uh So, uh, whereas before we all dealt with headache, we probably, at least in our department anyway, now refer to colleagues for prescription of of this type of thing.
1: I'm not sure that's necessarily going to be the way forward, Phil, because, uh, you know, actually, if the diagnosis is secure, the actual um, range of adverse effects and things that we're aware of at the moment is relatively straightforward. And whilst there's a follow up schedule, it doesn't carry the same weight as you know the ms disease modifying therapies so so i, I think actually there's a good chance if they prove to be effective and particularly if the price becomes more um sustainable within the community that actually this, this is something one may be working more collaboratively with primary care
0: all right okay so more more mainstream then yeah that, that well that's a good point perhaps uh, uh, perhaps that will be the case i've not yet prescribed them myself maybe i'm just putting my own personal spin on that i was interested also the overlap and Uh, synergism really with botulinum toxin that um, it's not yet something that NICE have um, put their thumbs up to but uh, they're they're thinking that maybe the CGRP antagonists might work synergistically with botulinum toxin. I mean I had originally thought Botox was mainly about muscle relaxation hence the need to put in 34 injections around the scalp etc but it it looks like there are chemical mechanisms underlying Botox uh, that means you perhaps could put one big injection into the abdomen and have some effect as well from that. So uh, there's clearly a lot to be learned about uh, the new um, uh, treatments of of headache by me
1: in particular. Uh, (laughs) Excellent. So um, we then move on to our our, um, editor's choice multiple systems atrophy, which I think you're going to take us through, Phil, which comes from the um, uh, neuromuscular disease team at the UCL and the MSA Trust uh, with the lead author, uh, Yi Yang Go. Thank you. Yeah. So this is
0: our editor's choice, indeed, and deservedly so. This is an absolutely superb paper. But I should point out it, it is already open access, and so it is one where we were allowed to pass on the free to download to another paper, and we've given that to the Delirium paper. So that is actually free to download. So, but th- this paper is absolutely wonderful. It is written, uh, in fact, the lead author, Viorica Chelban, an ABN fellow. At least she was at the at the time of the uh, of the writing, and um, a superb appointment. I have to say, I was on the. Uh, committee at the time she was appointed. The MSA trust had put up a full fellowship and uh, there was some concern there might not be a suitable applicant for it, but we were rewarded with an absolutely superb applicant who probably came top on that day overall. And uh, she's uh, been a great success and has been joined here by a stellar team of, of authors. This condition, multiple system atrophy, a very, very sad condition really um often gets diagnosed late, and there isn't really that much time for delay because the prognosis is rather poor with mortality after uh only uh seven to eight years and um it presents in a very subtle way. It's a bit like uh, in in hematology, it's a bit like uh, myeloma. In endocrine, it's a bit like hyperparathyroidism, where you you end up with all these subtle symptoms involving various systems. And uh, that is the very nature of multiple system atrophy. And that is why, I suppose, it is such an important paper. It's so loaded with information because it needs to cover each of the various symptoms with which this may present. So the bottom lines of this are that there are two types of multiple system atrophy, the cerebellar and the Parkinsonian type, that this is one of the synucleinopathies and hence things like Uh, REM sleep behaviour disorder might herald this condition, as well as heralding Parkinson's disease, that uh, on suspecting it, and there are all sorts of things that might lead you to suspect it, but uh, they include Parkinsonism, uh, ataxia, but also early falls, and not so much dementia, but uh, unexplained genital urinary dysfunction as well. And The three things we should be doing when we suspect it is to do a post-void residual volume, secondly, a lying and standing blood pressure, and thirdly, to do MR brain scan with susceptibility-weighted imaging because there are iron-specific changes on the brain scan, including around the putaminal rim. So the management, as we've touched on already, is a focus on the symptoms and sometimes it's a focus on removing medications and rationalising medications. Because often with the presentation in various ways and the wrong diagnosis first in many, many cases, they've accumulated medications that they no longer need and it's important that we intervene by rationalising those. But uh, where they do need specific medications, it might be for, say, their Parkinsonism, their bladder problem, their their, uh, blood pressure Uh, problems etc and the early discussion with palliative care I mean it sounds uh, uh, it is in general a condition that is untreatable in sense there's no disease modifying therapy there's no cure and so this is about keeping people on board and trying to make the best of their symptoms and that can include an early discussion with palliative care getting the best out of palliative care we can but as so often with untreatable conditions, the same with motor neuron disease, etc. Just knowing the diagnosis, knowing what you're up against as a patient is really, really important. And, and the worry of not having a diagnosis can make the whole situation 10 times worse. So, so it is really important to make this diagnosis. And uh, even though it will not necessarily lead to um, uh, a specific um, in, uh,
1: medication and intervention. I agree, Phil. It's a very helpful paper and I think very holistic in its approach. And I think it is one of those situations where they, they, I know um, Amy will be discussing this with the authors in her podcast, so we won't go to in, in too much detail. I think knowing about it and therefore thinking about the non-motor symptoms um, and the non-classical Parkinsonian symptoms should allow people to to get on track quite soon. I was quite struck that the Blood pressure and pulse uh, done automatically um, over three minutes, lying and standing, yields actually almost as much information as a tilt table test. So I think that's something which most war most outpatients could do for you, uh, so you can actually get the the, um, the at least one of the criteria relatively easily if you wanted to pursue that. But I think um, certainly, as you say, freely available. So if you forward the link to all your Parkinson's nurses and your colleagues who may not be as familiar with this, uh, then I think you'll be doing them all a favour.
0: Yeah, and and I think the whole thing oozes with experience, really. And so they're not just referring to guidelines, which they're probably all authors of anyway, but they actually take them a step further. So they say there are 2022 diagnostic criteria, but they're actually recommending a slightly more aggressive approach to the trial of L-DOPA for three months, for example, instead of one month. They're, they're suggesting using melatonin instead of clonazepam for the sleep disorders. They, they suggest uh, that uh, fluoxetine used in any depression there might actually help the orthostatic hypotension I mean, these are the sort of things that come from uh experience and and that is why this is such a great paper one one last point garant on the the editor business here multiple system atrophy or multiple systems atrophy surely it's multiple systems <laughs> you're you're speechless
1: i'm i'm speechless phil i i I feel certain we shouldn't now change the diseases we we did have a while ago some uh, discussion as to whether it was parkinson or parkinson's disease huntington or huntington's disease uh, because obviously there's a transatlantic dispute as to whether there's an apostrophe and an s uh, after these conditions we tend to prefer to keep them Sorry, I'll give you warning of uh, that that sort of thing in the future. You, you weren't prepared for that, that question, <laughs> right? Okay, right. So, so our next paper is actually um, a nitrous oxide induced subacute combined degeneration of the cord diagnosis and treatment. And again, we've got the diagnosis and treatment elements to this. And this is from the uh, um, University of London Queen Mary's setup. Uh, led by uh, Alva Paris and um, Alastair Noyce. And again, so this is coming from experience. And this is a a condition which I think everyone is now hopefully aware of. I mean, we've published a few cases of it in different regards, but this is something of an epidemic. And I think it's it's also entered the public domain where politicians are wondering whether we should be able to to ban it or um, uh, control access to nitrous oxide because of these neurological complications. And I think this is a, a very nice summary of pretty much everything you need to know about the condition with a very explicit set of recommendations as to how to approach uh, the diagnosis and treatment. I mean, obviously, as I'm sure we'll all remember from uh, biochemistry, and I'm sure, Phil, you you were as keen on biochemistry as I was, the key thing here is cobalt. If you have the um, uh, vitamin B12 is needed and uh, the nitrous oxide oxidises the cobalt atom uh, and, uh, in the centre of it all, which prevents it from working. And so, broadly speaking, what you're doing is you're inactivating B12. Now, clearly, if the B12 is already low for nutritional reasons, then uh, you're much more susceptible to developing this problem. Interestingly, it takes uh, a week or two uh, after exposure. So, if you have a huge exposure to, uh, a, you know, a session of nitrous oxide abuse, then uh, you know, it's 10 to 20 days later is when you'll develop the neurological problems. And the neurological problems really do mirror those of subacute combined degeneration of the cord with sensory loss, uh, spasticity, brisk reflexes, and um, uh, loss of um, hand function with pseudoathetosis and so on. So you've got a very dramatic issue. And and, and, and when people have that problem, you can do a scan of the neck and they recommend that you do that to make sure you haven't got alternative explanations and you can see tract changes within the cervical spine. They also recommend um, either doing homocysteine or methylmalonic acid, uh, both of which are increased because of the functional ad- um, loss of B12. So they've got a very nice, straightforward algorithm as to how to approach it. And then, how do you treat it? Well, clearly, you stop people taking the stuff and you give them um, B12 and you make sure you, you, they turn up to have the B12 because clearly. A lot of these patients are not particularly uh, keen on regular appointments, and they talk really about how to try and maintain that, because clearly, if this is something that if you don't address, it can go on to lead to to fixed and long-term disability. So it's really important to try and help people to stop using it and actually to make sure that they have the appropriate treatment uh, to recover so I think this is a, a very useful thing it's the kind of thing which I would hope that actually a lot of our general physician colleagues will find useful in A&E and all this kind of stuff because uh, I think that this is a, currently an epidemic which is affecting lots of people um, and yeah uh, again if you're aware of it you'll ask about it and it won't be a mystery.
0: Yes because it being the second most common drug of recreational abuse then perhaps people don't mention it because it's so normal it's, it's a bit like uh, you know as far as they're concerned it's you know having a couple of pints of lager or something but no, you know the staggering quantities of this stuff that gets consumed I mean these authors are saying an average of 580 canisters per week you know and the interquartile range goes up to 1012 you know the We we featured in the Christmas edition uh, the the nitrous oxide canisters on the cover. And um, no, that was really only a couple of nights worth, it looks like, for one person. The other thing is the disingenuousness of the manufacturers that they are producing these large amounts of canisters, supposedly for the small numbers of cappuccino machines around the world, and yet they do them in bright colours and make them attractive to teenagers. I mean, you know, how how can they pretend that it it is anything other than profit at the expense of uh, abuse and neurological damage? So actually it's pleasing that um, in uh, March there was the um, new... Focus on this from the British government and, and making uh, nitrous oxide uh, a, a lot less uh, acceptable. Anyway, I think the, the other thing it, actually, this reading this paper made me look at some of the biochemistry a bit and uh, the differences between nitric oxide, which is NO, nitrous oxide N two O, uh, nitrogen dioxide NO two, and dinitrogen dioxide N two So um, we as uh, neurologists need to make sure we refer invariably to nitrous oxide. So an important study. Right, Should we we move on then um, to the the next paper, important paper which is um, called Managing Painful Shoulder After Neurological Injury. And this is uh, by Celine Lacra and uh, her team from London, from uh, Queen Square predominantly. And um, this is one of those papers that we might perhaps, when when you see the title, you perhaps think, well, this should be uh, what neurologists should need to know outside their specialty, until you start reading it, and then you realise this is something that many of our patients in our clinics every day will actually have. When we hear that uh, uh, it's some 40% of people after a stroke will have this sort of shoulder pain, Um, 35% of people with MS, 62% with traumatic brain injury, 11% of Parkinson's have a shoulder problem. So this is actually intrinsic to our practice. And I read this mainly uh, in detail for the purpose of the podcast. I would uh, urge you all to read this paper because it is full of learning about things that we we should know a great deal more about. So um, shoulder anatomy is complex and we are therefore treated to a beautiful diagram uh, of the shoulder. Uh, and it helped me to learn where teres minor inserts into the shoulder, etc. But it's actually something that illustrates beautifully the four clinical presentations of um, a painful shoulder, which uh, the whole article is based around these four. The first is hypotonia with subluxation, so the sort of flaccid shoulder that pulls at the soft tissues and leads to secondary problems, including inflammation there. The second one is spasticity, where we have uh, the uh, shoulder internally rotated and um, adducted. And again, it can be that the pain from this bad shoulder can lead to worsened spasticity so another vicious cycle there there's also the subacromial pain syndrome and the subacromium is a complex anatomical area that you'll need the diagram to understand fully uh, and then finally the frozen shoulder and frozen shoulder of course very very common two components to that again there's this pain predominant phase the early phase where there's a inflammation owing to the um, the stretching of the soft tissues around there the active inflammation and then there is a a later stiffness predominant phase where there is joint fibrosis and this just worsens the restriction so this I think is um, uh, something that we, we need to know more about. We need to understand uh, and be able to explain to people what is going on. Uh, and we need to think again about the management. And the management, once again, it's the theme of this issue really, is non-pharmacological predominantly. It The management is about prevention and some helpful diagrams here to help people to prevent problems, particularly after a stroke, positioning and handling, etc. Um, but then the treatment in terms of um, uh, physiotherapy, etc., and uh, in sh- improving um, the function that exists, rather than getting in there with heavyweight drugs, etc. The other theme from this paper, which again goes across the board in the issue, is that an MDT is the best way to lead on the management here. It's uh, there are all sorts of causes of this. Uh, shoulder problem there are all sorts of approaches to treatment and we need people like physiotherapists to be on board with the the management of this problem so i recommend this paper to you and not necessarily something that all neurologists will immediately home in on when they see the the list of contents but i would urge you nevertheless to take a look admire the diagram and uh, look at the uh, ways of, of managing this very very common problem in our clinics
1: and I think it's one of those situations where uh, if we can broaden people's perception uh, so that they don't just think it's a frozen shoulder, it's a sublux shoulder or whatever, that actually they'll then at least prompt other people to take it further forward as to how to manage these, uh, obviously, quite debilitating symptoms.
0: So, the the next one then is uh, anti-HMGCR myopathy, barriers to prompt recognition, and uh this is from andrea barth and colleagues and they are predominantly from um, queen's square in london again and um this is accompanied by an editorial from john walters who helps to put this paper into its uh, clinical perspective so garrett you've been having a look at this paper so,
1: yes this is one of those things where you know we're, we're, we're learning more about um muscle disease and inflammatory muscle disease. And this is a quite a helpful reminder of the problems you can run into if you go down the wrong, if you start barking up the wrong tree, if you go down the wrong alley, and you tend to stay there. And, and obviously, where people would typically be aware of uh, the anti-HMGCR myopathy as being something which is triggered by statin use. So very often uh, you'll see someone with a myopathy with a statin. It will then get better when you take them off the statin. Uh, But if it doesn't, this is an antibody which you'll often find, and then this will be a provoked inflammatory myopathy that follows. And what the case is, and there are two cases in this report, well, it really shows quite how diverse the presentations can be. Um, They've got a case of uh, a woman who presented with a sort of... um, myopathic change with raised ck and progressive weakness which was assessed and was thought to be a genetic myopathy it seemed to be a slower onset and she developed uh, changes that they thought were probably in keeping with um, uh, an fsh type syndrome Uh, genetics were negative they tried fancier genetics they didn't get the answer and it was only after a, a bit that actually the the penny dropped that perhaps this could be Um, related to this antibody and they find uh, high levels of the antibody and this then allows you to treat with immunosuppression uh, with um, uh, um, a degree of recovery. So an opportunity here for for treatment was missed because of a a misdirection down a genetic um, avenue. The second case Um, is looking at it slightly different is someone who actually looks as if they've got an inflammatory uh, myopathy that they thought was related to vasculitis that was being treated for vasculitis. um, And uh, the focus was very much down that that avenue as a result of muscle biopsy and so on. But then they find the antibody and uh, uh, this then allows them to to go on with immunosuppression and treatment. So we've got really um, two quite clinically different things, which both Meant that the the actual correct diagnosis was some time in coming, and John reviewed this. John Walters reviewed this for us and made some uh, very perceptive comments discussing this. And uh, on the back of that, we then asked him to uh, write this editorial to discuss the whole process. and 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 I think he's he does a very fine job in highlighting the issues here and and how we could try and avoid falling into this trap in the future. And uh, you know, the idea that you've got a g- genetic myopathy, until you've got the gene, you haven't, you know, you haven't eliminated the possibility of alternatives. So there's the opportunity for thinking. And I think uh, John mentions the fact that oftentimes it's, you know, a junior doctor, someone coming along from the outside saying, well, what about this? Uh, That very often allows a rethink, a reframing of the question to allow you to try and move forward with the diagnosis. And so, uh, you know, I I think this is a, a useful lesson for us all um you know talking about relatively rare muscle disorder but actually the principle applies to a much wider range of diagnostic um, or diagnoses where we we perhaps have more certainty than we deserve which perhaps closes our minds to the opportunity that could lead to treatment
0: yeah and this one features on our front cover this month as well um It's actually a paper, I think, that breaks two of our rules. The first is that there is an abbreviation in the title, but really uh, it's deserved because I, I can't bring myself to spell out the full uh, glory of HMGCR. But the other thing is that it's got two cases in it. And we often say to authors when they try to submit a case series, well, actually, if all of the cases make the same practical point, then you only need one. The case is supposed to be illustrative rather than the glory in itself. And so, but in this case, in this case, in these cases, the two of them, they do in fact show different ways that HMGCR can fool you. Um, The first is that it's a chronic case It's still a very high CK but uh, very long-standing look like a genetic myopathy no no hint of a statin anywhere and the second one where even when a biopsy was done the biopsy wasn't typical and uh, so the message being test for this antibody because it's a treatable condition Uh, even if you think it might be a a genetic myopathy though the genetics haven't been helpful yet and even if you've had and pathology and it suggests inflammation and uh, uh, it might still be this condition. So it, it breaks the rules but uh, in a good way and, uh, and I would commend also the editorial because so often papers need a bit of clinical translation uh, to say how does it really affect us in the clinic And and John in his in his uh, congratulatory to the authors and self-effacing way, has done a beautiful job there uh, in um, in helping us to understand the importance of this paper.
1: And finally, we come to uh, another um, rule breaking enterprise in that, uh, generally speaking, we don't have reviews of books. We have book club reviews where people talk about what they discussed at a book club, but we don't have book reviews. However, we decided uh, um, to break this rule uh, in, in welcoming the AIDS to the examination of the peripheral nervous system, sixth edition, by um, Mike Michael O'Brien, um, because Really, this book is a uh, an ac- accompanies most neurologists um, through most of their clinics. If you haven't got a copy to hand, you will certainly know where to find one fairly quickly. And the new edition ha- doesn't change things dramatically. And but what it does do is tries to make this information as accessible as possible uh, to as many neurologists as as, as needed. So. Uh, He's produced a very brief summary of the history of the uh, development of this uh, wonderful little book. And I think we'll all be uh, updating to the, the latest version, at the very least, um, so we have access to the electronic version uh, online. And so it's with on our every computer that we have, as well as in our bag.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, this really does break the rules because we've actually got the author writing the book review here. And that doesn't happen very often, even in uh, even in those who commonly carry book reviews. But this author is not only the author of the book, he was at one stage, the photographer, and is now the person doing the examining. So um, he used to photograph Dr. McCarville doing the examination and um, then t- took over the examination himself. It, it, you know, it's it's an iconic book. I mean, it's it's okay to break the rules when you've effectively got the the Bible or the Shakespeare uh, to to review. So, um, know, I think we're quite comfortable with this. Um, he puts in a couple of asides that um, Macarbel would never want the cutaneous branches included in such a book, and so he. But he's now bravely done that, and in fact, put the cutaneous branches in capitals. In fact, on the, on the diagrams, which I like the there is we we look back in fact to the 2011 review of this book where there is um no another c- commentary by someone who feels that they really know this book inside out and in fact has four copies of it of different editions and uh Uh, notes that still, though, uh, the elbow extension is being examined without the elbow being supported. And also, this was in the 2011 edition, and that also the strength of the calf and the quad should really be examined with the patient standing. Any thoughts on that, Geraint, as as an author of a book on uh, which I shouldn't be advertising on your behalf, a book on neurological examination?
1: Uh, well, so, so I should declare a conflict of interest that other books are available. However, um, I, I think that the points are well made, but but this is, I, I don't think, in any way diminished by the fact that these these you know uh, minor technical variations are not brought out. I think this is just such a beautiful. Um, resource it's quite interesting that when we get genetic results, oftentimes if you 've got something uh, which is an an abnormality or a variant in a well conserved area of a gene it is taken as being much much more significant and I think the remarkable thing about this book and the fact that the book the the editions have changed so little is actually there really is a remarkable conservation of the knowledge or the the data through these different editions, the the variations that we're seeing are really remarkably limited. You know, we have colour, we have new things being added in, but the core, it really characterises so much of of, um, the everyday neurological knowledge that we need to have with us.
0: Yeah, and one thing I would say uh, hugely in its favour is that since the mid-70s, the profits have gone to the guarantors of brain, the... That, that fund, uh, amongst other things, the ABN fellowships, and uh, so uh, that is one of the reasons why I feel able to buy a copy of this through departmental funds, not my personal fund, for the uh, for the trainees in our unit. The other thing maybe to consider is that it, it's been called aids to the um, investigation initially and to the examination of now. Uh, that that's perhaps not a great name but but it's uh it is part of uh the history of neurology so
1: that's probably why it stayed yeah um and a wonderful christmas present for or birthday present for any trainee that you know yeah so that's it really for
0: the june editors podcast highlights and um I hope you'll enjoy this issue of the journal. There are other podcasts relating to practical neurology on all your favourite platforms, particularly look out for Amy Ross Russell talking to Viorica Chelban on multiple system atrophy. But until next time, happy reading.
1: Happy reading.